say the game is getting old. Monday morning and your coffee's cold. Life is not what you want it to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A New Direction. My name is Jay Izzo, and holy cow, did we do it again. Wow, all the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, ladies and gentlemen, let us welcome to the show. Oh, he's going to be fantastic. I'm just telling you. Listen, hold it. So Dr. William Putzis is going to be with us, all right, and his book is entitled The Carrot and the Stick. Okay, whoa, 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 easy. Back away, back away from the dial, okay? Just back away from the dial, because I'm going to tell you something. This is one of those preeminent business books that is going to change the way you fundamentally think about your business, period. It is about all the interconnectivity, right? And we are so interconnected. You cannot deny that. I don't care what business you're in. I don't care if you are a sole proprietorship or you are a huge corporation. The fact of the matter is everything is far more interconnected. Not only is it interconnected, that interconnectivity is leading to all sorts of ways that we can now enter the market and not only enter the market, but that we can do things within our own business that can allow us to connect to other businesses and maybe transform our own business ecosystems. What? Jay, what do you, eco, business ecosystem, what, 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 business ecosystem, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to talk about control and leverage points. What? 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 Yeah, we're going to talk about vertical alignment and being able to apply incentives. What? Yeah, yeah Dr. Putzis is going to do that today. Yeah, he's going to be out, absolutely outstanding. Uh, I'm telling you, he's going to be fantastic. You're going to love him. You're going to love him. He's fun. He's funny. We've already had a great conversation together, and he's absolutely brilliant. And um, we're, it's going to be applied to your business. I promise it will. But let's do what we do every week, right? I walk you through the four areas of your life, right? Because I believe we're four-part people. We are physical people, we are mental people, we're emotional people, and we're spiritual people, right? And, you know, I talked to you about your training because as we have learned on this show from previous guests, you know what? When things go bad, when you're in the midst of a pandemic and you're in the midst of a lot of pressure and you are exhausted and you are tired, guess what? You're only as good as your training. So we asked the four questions. How is your training going out there right now in those four areas of your life, right? So physically, when we I ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, how's your training? 1 being you're awful, 10 being you're outstanding. When I ask you that, what I'm asking you is how well are you training? Are you getting enough exercise? Are you eating the right things? Are you drinking enough water? Are you getting enough sleep? Okay? those That's what I'm asking you. How well are you doing? If physically in terms of your training, right? Give yourself a number, scale of one to 10, five is average, all right? All right, that's your first number. That's your training number. Then you got to ask yourself, what do I got to do to step up my training in that area, okay? What can I do right now to step up my training, right? Because that's, that's what's critical here, right? Is not just acknowledging the number, then what are you going to do about it? How are you going to change it? Right. And 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 by the way, whatever the number is, it's not about getting to a 10 immediately. It's just moving up to the next number. Right. In all these areas. Okay. All right. So that's your first number. Second number is the mental number. All right. What's your mental training look like when I talk about mental training? You know what? It is so easy for us to, you know, because we're in this uh, evident pandemic, I guess is what we're calling it. Right. So what what 
it's so easy to do is sit in front of a TV and let things come at you and try to feed you information instead of being an active participant in mentally mental growth. And that is, that is actually being an active participant in actually reading, doing things that actually help you grow your mind. You know, keep in mind as a psychological professional, you know, I say to people all the time, right, is that we have two halves of the brain. You have a right side of your brain, which is creative. You have the left side of your brain, which is more logical. And the point is that you're trying to actually train both halves of your brain. Now, there are some things that we can do that can actually train those both at the same time. Learn an instrument, learn a foreign language. Those things actually work both halves of your brain, you know. But consuming reading material that's actually actually helping you grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding or your, your, or your job or your career, those are the things I'm asking you about in terms of how's your training go mentally. Again, same scale, 1 to 10, 5 being average. All right? So you got two numbers, physical number, mental number. Now I'm going to ask you about your emotional training number. And what I mean by emotional training, we talk about two things quite frequently. We talk about emotional quotients or emotional intelligence, right? I'm going to just make it really, really simple for you. How is your training going in, in, number one, the ability for you to be able to control your own emotions, right? Regardless of what happens, how well are you able to control your own emotions and how are you working on being more intentional about training that? And then the second piece is how well are you able to understand the emotions of others? And when I say understand, I'm talking about empathy. That not only can I understand the emotions, I, I, I can feel them to the point that I can walk in your shoes, right? And how well is that training going? You say, well, how do you train that, Jay? Well, I'll tell you how you train it. First of all, you take 100% responsibility for everything that you say, everything that you do, and everything you feel regardless what anybody says, says to you or whatever your circumstances. That's, that's number one. Two, you can always learn more about your emotions. The more you learn and the more that you're aware of how you respond, you have to understand that you always have choices emotionally. And that's intention. Right, so on a scale of 1 to 10, how well is that training going for you? Right, right. so you have three numbers, physical, mental, emotional. And then finally, the fourth area, the spiritual area. And, you know, of course, people throw up in their arms, Jay, I don't believe in spiritual stuff. Well, yeah, you do. I promise you, you believe in spiritual stuff. Because if you remove the mental, emotional, and physical, right, what you have left is kind of the spiritual Right. And and what that is, is that we all have faith. Right. First of all, when we wake up in the morning, we really don't know what the rest of the day is. But we go about our day anyway, don't we? By faith. <laughs> it's just that simple. You, when you go to sleep at night, you believe you're going to get up. Right. Well, that's actually faith. Right. You don't know if you're going to get up, but we believe that we are because we keep planning. We keep planning for our future. If we don't have faith, we don't plan. But we all have some sort of faith. That's the reason why we plan ahead right? It's the reason, you know what, I'm going to get, I'm going to write another book. I haven't written it yet, but I have that plan in my head. I must believe that I'm going to be alive long enough to write that book, right? So we all have faith, right? And that's spiritual. And as I've said to you before, look, spirituality is not going to church and thinking about fishing. It's going fishing and thinking about God, all right? And, and it's about being centered, you know, it's something that brings you back to center. It's something that brings you back to that sense of peace, that sense of contentment, right? And for a lot of people, it's a number of things. It could be meditation. It can be God. It could be nature. It could be all sorts of things. The question is, how's that training going and how's it working out for you, right? And so when I say that to you, 
I want you to think that whatever those four numbers are, because now you have four, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, you need to think of those as the leg of a, legs of a chair. And if the legs of the chair are uneven, right, it's bad on your posture. If the legs of the chair are too low, it's also bad because you can never truly eat at the, at the table that you're supposed to be eating at, right? So bring them up together, bring them up in balance, and you're going to find that you're going to have a much greater and more successful life. And speaking of somebody who wants to deliver you a much greater and successful life, his name is Dr. William Putzis. He is currently professor of marketing and economics and business strategy at the Keenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill where he has served in the, as the department chair from 2004 to 2006. Prior to that, he was professor and department area of chair of London Business School. He's also been the associate professor at the Yale School of Management, Yale at Yale University, and assistant professor at Cornell University. He has his master's of science and PhD in economics and operations research from Cornell University. He is also president and CEO of Chestnut Hill Associates, a strategic consulting firm that was founded in 1995. He has recently taught successful core executive and full-time MBA courses at top-ranked universities in the United States and in Europe, such as Columbia University, London Business School, and University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's won awards for his executive teaching numerous times. His recent list of clients, folks, listen to this list of clients for executive development programs, Boeing, Barclays Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, SAS, ABN, AMRO, BASF, Armour, John Deere, British Airways, Baker Hughes, International, Baker Hughes International, Siemens, the U.S. Navy, Matsushita, ExxonMobil. The list goes on and on. He his research and pursuits focus on empirical application of game theoretical models of competition and competition strategy, the marketing of private label products, new product diffusion and product line strategy. His latest book that we're about to talk about is called The Carrot and the Stick, and it is absolutely brilliant. So everybody, please welcome to the show and welcome to a new direction, Dr. William Putzis. Welcome, Bill. Thanks. Thanks, Jay. So great to, to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Hey, listen, this book, I said this to you uh, on several occasions. This book, The Carrot, The Stick, Doc, it's a monster. <laughs> That's what I, 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 I've said that to you over and over again. Because this is, this is, I mean, I mean, I've had to, I had to work. You know, there's books sometimes I have to, I had to really work. I had to work on this book. But when I got down what you were trying to say, when I really got it to hit home, because you have such great examples, I was like, oh, and then I'm like going, man, I can't wait to talk to him because I want to apply this to everything that we do. And I think I even found some applications in my own show in what you do, and I hope to talk about those. So let's 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 dig right in. The the carrot and the stick, right? And so you, uh, you first of all, you talk about in the preface that the key premise of the book is that Today's environment, uh, effective and long-lasting strategies must take a carrot-and-stick approach based on the principles of strategic control points and vertically aligned incentives. And and this is and you're going to teach us that uh, at least partially today. But let's talk about. I think it's important that the the listeners understand. Okay, what are we talking about the stick? What are we talking about the carrot? So let's just let's just kind of define a couple of the, the two basic terms from the book, and then we'll move from there. Does that sound fair? That sounds perfect. Okay, sounds so perfect. let's talk about the stick. What is the stick part of the carrot and the stick? 
Well, the stick is something I call points of strategic control or strategic control points. And before I get into what they are, I just, uh, Jay, it's probably worth saying a couple words about, you know, something that applies to big organizations and small organizations alike. And people often talk about, in, in the book, I, I try and tell, uh, I give a lot of examples with stories. But it, 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 I often say a lot of the big companies that we know, the Amazons, the Alphabets, the Googles, and the Apples of the world use these principles to develop their, their businesses. And if we're ever going to compete against them, if we're ever going to build our businesses with success, the, the stick is probably the most important element in building a business today, whether it be a local restaurant, whether it be uh, an entrepreneur, whether it be a Fortune 500 company. And so if you think about the stick, I usually like to tell, and I think you know where I'm going to go with the story, a story that I'll tell in front of audiences that I think illustrated it best. Uh, and the example that I'll give is the, the one of soft soap, a true story. The uh, company was a company by the name of the Minnetonka Corporation. They, they ran a small little company uh, in the upper Midwest in, in Minnesota. And they had a product. It was called Creme de la Soap on Tap. One of those names that just roll off your tongue, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, they wanted to go national with a small little niche product. It was back in the day when I was growing up. And, you know, we usually use bar soap. It was before the day that, that liquid soap is as popular as it is today. And they wanted to make liquid soap a household product. The problem that a small entrepreneur faces when they go national it, with anything, even today, is they go against the big players, the Colgate-Pomalo, the Unilevers, the Johnson & Johnson. And the best they could hope for is to get shelf space. And then the big boys see what they're doing. They come up with a with an alternative product, beat them on price, push them off the shelf. And in some, some cases, the best they could hope for is to establish the category for someone else to win because they have more money to spend. So they figured if they had a year, a year to keep the big players out of the market, in that year they can build enough shelf space, enough brand recognition that even if the big players came in a year later, they could continue to succeed in the market, you know, maybe with a third of the market, which is pretty good for a, for a startup brand. And they started to think about, well, how can we keep the big players out of the market for at least a year? And, you know, often people out there may think the first thing you'd think about is let's get a patent. Um, well, you can't patent liquid soap. I think it was 1902 the first patent was issued. So it's long since expired. They couldn't pat patent it to protect it. Mm -hmm. So what they decided to do is they bought up the world's supply of pumps. I love that. Absolutely brilliant. And it turns out we did some of the back of the envelope cap calculations, a colleague of mine. It wasn't all that expensive because pumps weren't as pop popular as they were today. And by doing that, it took the big players – about a year to discover the category, to build a factory to make pumps, and then also to come out with the product and launch it. And a year later, the big players came in. A year after that, the company sold, uh, the Minnetonka company sold soft soap brand to Colgate Pomalov for $1.7 billion. That's how you become a billionaire in that's, a couple of years. That's a shame. <laughs> yeah, no, there is something to that. You're right. <laughs> uh, I, it's a brilliant so. story. It's, it, it's so brilliant. It, and I, when I read that piece that here is Minnetonka, you know, what, how brilliant is that, that they could just buy up all the, the pumps globally. And, 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 and Jay, the key to that is that they're not in the pump business. They're in the soap <laughs> right, business. Right. And, and so everyone starts to think about how I compete locally, whether it be a restaurant on Main Street, an entrepreneur with a new chip startup, or a big company. And that's the problem is markets are so interconnected that if you find something in short supply that is part of what you're doing, that 
is something you can leverage to a much bigger opportunity in your core business. I love, you know, you know what, I think though, what happens is that so frequently, especially as a, an entrepreneur or maybe a small business owner, or maybe even medium sized businesses, I think we look at those, those giants and go, man, I mean, I mean, I couldn't buy up all the pumps, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have that kind of capital available to me. I know that you in the book say all the time, listen, technology is not necessarily, you don't have to have a better technology. There's a lot of other ways outside of technology that you can be able to create leverage that we're just not thinking of. But that's part of, I think that's part of what you also say about, you know, Welsh when he says, you know, great leaders look around corners, right? I mean, that, yeah. right. We kind of have to have that kind of have to keep our yeah. eyes open, right? So, 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 Jay, if I do, I'll do, throw out a couple of examples. I have a chapter sure. in what I call disintermediation. I don't like a lot of fancy terms. I think you know from the book, what I like to do is tell practical stories so that Good. the intuition is there. Okay. If the intuition is there, you can create your own opportunities. But I'll go no further than Dollar Shave Club, Harry's, uh, Uber, and Lyft. Right. Okay. Warby Parker and Eyeglasses. These, these were like Warby Parker were two individuals that ended up beating, uh, in many cases, some of the bigger players. Who would have thought that you could somehow take on the city of New York and their taxi medallion monopoly and create a huge business, which which, which is what Uber did. And so it's those small little ideas that, that you can change and get a, a, find a point of strategic control locally mm. that you can then leverage into a bigger opportunity. You know, the medallion thing is interesting to me because you talk about this in the book. In the 1940s, the cabs had to have medallions. And in the 1940s, it was like $2,500 for the, their medallion. By 2013, it was $1.3 million for the medallion. Uber comes in and just kind of like says, well, we're going to do this and then we'll ask for forgiveness later. I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's kind of what they yeah. did, isn't it? Yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> they just kind of said, "Well, we're just going to skip all that." Or, <laughs> yeah, and and good luck stopping it, right? Because they couldn't. They there was really nothing for them for them really to do. Because how do you stop something like that? Absolutely. And, and, and as you know, Jake, I know you've read the book, the, the one chapter that I have focusing on this, and then there's a follow-up which addresses some of these, is for a business that is facing an Amazon, uh, a Google, an Apple, and trying to compete against some of the larger players, what do you do to break up or, in a fancy term, disintermediate mm -hmm. those strategic control points they already have? And there are good techniques and opportunities to do that, probably for a lot of your listeners. Yeah, we will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely get into that, because the, the stick part, right, the strategic control point, control points part is 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 really critical i mean even Great. in your research you know it, it accounts for we're, we'll talk about your research too because your research is brilliant but even in your research you were able to demonstrate that just that point alone creates tremendous amount of success in about 23 percent of the companies Right. Yeah. So I so I, I often argue, and I think you I think you know, as I work with a lot of companies, again, small and large, that that, that where we address this, and I often argue strategic control is the most important concept, right. um, the notion of that stick, because I can. The second part is the carrot, which is about aligned incentives, and I can align incentives organically. I can do it on my own, find a way to change the incentive structure of constituents. It's much harder to find a strategic control point that didn't exist. If the pump example. Uh, if the world cornering the world supply on pumps was $13 billion, a small little company couldn't have done it. It just so happened that it was in short supply. So it's easier to find a the, find the carrot than it is the stick. The stick is often a characteristic of your industry or a parallel industry. You know, this, this is the other piece that you bring into the element of talking about, you know, finding the stick, right? Finding that control point. And 
and it is the interconnected piece that I think sometimes we just do not, we either take it for granted or because we're so interconnected, we really are not really aware that there are things out there because of all the interconnected that we can actually place leverage. We can actually probably find some control points that so allow, true. that allow us, right? I mean, yep. I, I, first of all, I want to just tell you, I loved you, the, the the story that appealed to me so much, and maybe it's because I'm a guy who, a kid who grew <laughs> up with trains and loved trains and was fascinated by them as a kid. But I have to tell you, the story about Vanderbilt and the Hudson and the Hudson River Bridge, I thought was one of the best stories <laughs> when it came to understanding, because it literally not is just a metaphor for control point. It was a control point. Yep, and 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 made it hit, made him become one of the richest people on the planet. Um, so it's great, great, great uh, plug here, if I will, Jay, to, to you and the audience. There's a, a, a History Channel ten-part series called "The Men Who Built America," and it it's about the men. Unfortunately, back then it was all it was all all males that were building America, at least from the business side of things, back then. Um, and um, the uh, the the show is all about the leaders at the turn of the the industrial revolution from the 1900 uh, from the uh, 18 to 1900s, and that every business lesson there still applies today. It's amazing when you see things that Vanderbilt did back in the day. We see people doing today uh, in our markets, and that was one. If anyone gets a chance, there's a series awesome. in there and a great clip. Awesome, I, I I love that. You know what? Guess what? Guess what, folks. This book is called The Carrot and the Stick, and we are with the author, Dr. William Putzis, and he is with us here on A New Direction. Folks, you know, I talk often about the two sponsors that sponsor this show, and they give of their money, and um, and more than just their money, all right? I mean, I'm grateful that they do spend money on this show, but you know what I'm really grateful for is that the services that they offer, and they do, they're amazing. I mean, they're, these are not people who are, you know, average they're not above average. These people are excellent in what they do. And the first one I'm going to talk about is Epic Physical Therapy. Look, I am the king of going to physical therapy. I've had more injuries and probably more surgeries than I care to even talk about. My wife will say, you've got to stop doing stupid because I seem to injure myself quite a bit. And where do I go? Epic Physical Therapy. Every single time, whether I'm injured, whether it's a surgery, whether sometimes it's just an everyday ache and pain. And I'm like, oh, where did that come from? Right. And as we age, that kind of happens. And, you know, here's the other thing. You know, I still want to be able to do some of the athletic stuff that I did when I was a kid. I know sounds dumb, but guess what? They can help me with that, too, because they work with professional athletes as well. Look, if you're just looking to improve how you move and you feel, Epic Physical Therapy will provide you with a customized treatment program that's tailored to your individual needs. They have a tremendous amount of experience working with young athletes to professional athletes. And they understand that the need to treat the entire body as a functional whole. So not just your symptoms or your injury. So look, if you want epic relief, epic recovery, and epic results, don't look any further. Go to epicphysicaltherapy.com. It's epicpt.com. That's E-P-I-C-P-T.com. And Linda Craft and Team Realtors, I'm going to tell you something about them. They have been around for 35 years at the top of the real estate game. And I'm going to tell you something. To them, the reason why they are, because it's not a game. What they understand, and Linda understood this from back in 1985, is she understood that the best way to do what she does is to create relationships one at a time. 
And not only create those relationships, but then invest in them. Because she understood that it was more than just buying a home, which is probably the largest purchase you'll ever have in a lifetime personally. But you know what it was really about? It was the memories that were made in that home. Those are the things that will always remain. You're going to always remember your grandma's house. You're always going to remember the the first room that you had when you grew up in that house. Linda understood that all the, all the way back in 1985 and understood that's the most important part of real estate is those memories. And so she wanted to create memories, not just creating memories of the next home that you buy, but she wanted to really take care of all those old memories that you had in the home that you're about to sell. And so she became this memory maker. And because those memories became so precious to her, what happened was now her clients say, you know what? Her customer service is legendary. Why? Because she's, she takes care of the memories. So look, if you want a real estate person and a team that goes beyond just selling a home, but really is interested in you and the memories that you're about to make, look no further than Linda Craft and Team Realtors. And you can find them and find out more about them by going to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A. C-R-A-F-T dot com. And we're back here on A New Direction with Dr. William Putzis and uh, his outstanding book, The Carrot and the Stick, Leveraging Strategic Control for Growth. He's, by the way, he's, I'm going to just tell you something. Before, you know, I talked about all his accolades and all the things that he's done and he teaches at this at Keenan Flagler School and he's Yale and Cornell and he's Ivy League and all this stuff. The guy's got a great sense of humor. He is so much fun and uh, really enjoyed getting to know him and getting to know him. I can't wait for this thing to get over so that him and I can actually sit down and, and chat face to face. Um, so, Bill, let's talk about let, let's talk about some of this. Let's talk about the carrot for just a second. Let's just define that a little bit more clearly about when we say the carrot, you, you use the vertical incentive alignment, but I'm not sure people understand vertical versus horizontal incentive. So can we kind of break that down a little bit? Jay, I'd, I'd love to. And thanks for the kind words. I, uh, I, the, the, the best way to describe it is, again, I think via an example, but let me define it first. Vertically aligned incentives is just simple. It's a fancy term for saying that every constituent you touch should be aligned with your interests. Mm. The worst thing you have is if one of the constituents in your community is dead set against you for some reason, they will find a way to block what you're trying to do. So what we want to do, and there are really good creative ways to align every everyone's incentives so that people, when they do with their best interest, it happens to be in your best interest mm. for them to do that. So the real quick story is one um, number of years ago, Procter & Gamble, I'd spent some time with them in Cincinnati. And again, this will be a large company example, but the same kind of incentives could be a, you know, a, a, a real estate location, a, um, a relationship you have in, in, in the downtown environment or something like that. But P&G had just, um, was trying to set up a, a new kind of uh, relationship with Walmart. Walmart happened to be the largest customer. And the problem they faced at the time is everyone's trying to do the same thing. Procter & Gamble set up offices next to Walmart's world headquarters because Walmart was selling as much as one third of the nationwide business through them. And so so they wanted to cater to Walmart. So they put their people close to Walmart's headquarters. But the problem with that is um, I often refer to this as the Barney relationship in business. You know, the the show that luckily my son never watched when he was a kid, the Barney, <laughs> the purple dinosaur. I, I, yes, I yes, sadly, I do remember this this 
horrible, horrible <laughs> show. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the adult and the dinosaur, purple dinosaur, ran around the, the, the room and oh, said, yeah. you know, they sung, say song, I love you, you love I, me. I love you, you love me. Exactly. Oh, yeah, you just, I'm <laughs> wanting to now poke a fork in my ear. Okay, let's get good. Go. Exactly. That's, thank you for bringing up that memory, Dr. Putzis. <laughs> Anytime, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I like to use that example, though, because people often talk about relationships and business, and relationships, while they are important, are often fleeting. Right. So I call it the Barney syndrome in business. We think I love you, you love me is great, and it, it's important, but give Walmart a better deal. They'll walk and I love you every day, day of the week for a cheaper price. <laughs> That's <laughs> it, so true. And, and so I often argue the key in those, in those relationships, so the key is turning it into something that is sustainable, and that's where the the notion of vertically aligned incentives come in. So what actually P&G did at the time, and I'll tell this long story, a really short version of it, but what they did is they went to Walmart. It's now commonplace today, but it wasn't back then. And they said, look, we want to help you run your business more efficiently. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up a jointly managed and run inventory control system. So when one of your products at one of your stores is scanned, we're going to know your inventory level. And if your inventory level at your store gets below some pre-specified stock level, we'll show up just in time so you can lower in, uh, your inventory holding costs on our products and maybe never even have to have inventory holding costs. Now, today, Walmart doesn't have inventory holding costs. They're basically a consignment store. But back in the day, they did. And so what, what Procter & Gamble, by doing that, did was they were to lower the inventory holding costs on P&G products at Walmart stores by 60, 60%. Wow. So now if you're Walmart, what do you want to do? The effective margins that you see, because you have lower inventory only costs on Procter & Gamble products, the effective margins for P&G products just went through the roof. So what do you want to do if you're Walmart? You want to sell more P&G products. You Absolutely. want to put the Unilever products in the back shelf where no one can see them. You've now taken a behemoth-like Walmart, perfectly aligned their incentives with yours, and the best part of this, Jay, is that P&G didn't have to do anything. You just sit back and watch it happen because P&G knew, given that Walmart had lower cost structure now on P&G products, P&G knew that Walmart – that knew that it was in Walmart's best interest to do what's in P&G's best interest. I love that. And that's what we look for. It's, it's, a, fancy, it's a fancy term that, that a Nobel Prize-winning economist, Alva Williamson, was coined called asset specificity. But the idea is aligning the incentives of two parties so that it's in their interest to do what's in your best interest. And I argue where the magic happens in business is when you can find a point of strategic control and you're able to uh, align incentives so no one's fighting you. Everyone wants to jump on the bandwagon, and you're the only one can do it because you have that point of strategic control. Elon Musk is brilliant at his strategy and what he does to find those points and match them with the strategy. We're talking with William Putzis. Uh, the, the book is called The Carrot and the Stick, uh, Leveraging Strategic Control for Growth. Uh, it's absolutely fabulous. It's it's available at Amazon, bookstores. It's absolutely great. It was, uh, it's, it's, I I. I'm telling you, I learned so much from this book, and and there's so much to learn, and um, it's fantastic. Really, it's going to open your eyes and get you to start thinking more honestly. And by the way, I don't care if you be B to C, B to B, the the book the book works. It just does. Uh, it because what it's going to do is going to stimulate your thinking more than anything. In in chapter one, you talk about uh, sources of strategic control, right? And you give you you say like distribution and access. Um, you talk about information, hardware slash software, today's version, 
you know, basically give away the razor to sell the razor blades. Um, You talk about information, um, you know, ownership of access of information, privacy concerns. You do talk about that a little bit uh, in there as well. So can we, can we talk about a few of these that you think are most important to a business owner in terms of, or it's somebody who is a CEO of a company Let's let's highlight maybe a few of these that you think in terms of sources for the stick or strategic control. What what do you think are some of the best sources? Yeah, I think I so great question, Chase. I think I think two are more important than others. There, are, you know, some of them are access to raw materials and things right. like that. You usually most larger companies are the ones that may be able to do that. Um, cobalt these days, sapphire glass. Apple had some things in the past, but the two direct answers to your question are one distribution. And uh, classic examples would be eyeglasses over the years in terms of retail distribution. I use the taxi cab medallion example. Um, Home Depot, Lowe's, access to shelf is often Peller and Anderson in windows, uh, Delta, Moan, American Standard in, in faucets, for example. And the issue in many ways is given the distribution is locked up. Like some of my clients, Owens Corning, Globe Union, and others that I've worked with over the years are trying to disintermediate disintermediate or break up the existing control that the big players have. And so much of what we want to do is recognize that there are distribution lockouts, if you will, often by large players. And the key then becomes how do we overcome that if we can't get into the big box? And often there are ways today that there never were before. So one is distribution. And the second is you mentioned the razor razor blades. I call it hardware data. Um, and I'm in the middle of a startup right now that, um, you know, as five of us uh, entrepreneurs starting a new business that's meant to help small businesses um, in times of crisis, like we're going now with COVID-19, the bridge, we call it. And um, one of our biggest things is the, the use of data to help local businesses. And so we can give away some of what we do in order to help businesses down the road with uh, with what they're trying to do to stay alive and ultimately thrive in the marketplace. And the example I hold up in the book with some detail uh, is that of a, uh, a sensor manufacturer that puts a sensor on a windmill. And because that sensor is there, they have access to the performance data of the windmill and can actually do a better job providing maintenance and services. And even though they charge a higher fee, net, they're actually a lower cost because they give better performance as a result. And I think that, that those two are the key. How do you provide better services, not sell the data, um, not do the fa- Facebook Cambridge Analytica. I think anyone who sells data today is going to, even even if they can, inside of things like GDPR. Um, it's not about the data. It's about what are the data give, what does it give you in terms of your ability to do a better job for your customers so that they want to buy from you, even if you got better margins and charge a high, higher price. Um, anyone in supply chain out there, anyone trying to supply into the supply chain industry distribution um, and what's known as, you know, IOT, the Internet of Things, interconnectivity and supply chain. If you're not thinking about incentive alignment, uh, I'd argue long-term success has a much a significantly lower probability to it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I also, you know, and, and by the way, I, isn't it great? I thought that those would be the two. I just, I'm really kind of proud of myself because I thought that those would be the two that you would actually pick, believe it or not. I was like, well, I'm, I'm betting that it is because I felt that they were the most powerful. I, I felt like distribution. And then of course, you know, the, the idea of, right. You, the fact yeah. that matters, you, 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 you give away the razors and you're selling the razor blades. I love that idea, right? It's just, it's awesome. But the thing about this, this the idea of the stick, the, the, the strategic control, and you make this point towards the end of chapter one, is that you say strategic control points are not binary. 
because I, yeah. I and I think I think what as people are listening to the show they go I, I don't have a strategic control point but there it's really not whether you have one or don't have one right it's 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 a continuum thing talk about that for a second oh thank you so much Jay for bringing that up because I would have been would have been remiss had I had I not so and one of the things by the way it's great working with you as I said earlier before we were on is that you get it when you read it <laughs> clearly you get the concepts and that's not always the case so it's a, it's appreciated um, the direction of the questions and this is one of them that I probably should have mentioned before um, so I'll answer it two ways one absolutely it is not binary it can be from really weak it can be from non-existent to really weak to kind of medium to really strong to I own the market. It can be anywhere in between. So don't think if you can't find a, a parallel to the soft soap example that you can't use the concept. It's just a matter of how far will it get you um, and how, how effective will it be in the marketplace. But even a little bit in recognizing it can make a difference in the market. So absolutely, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a continuum. And so I think it's really important to recognize. And then Bill Building on that, Jay, the one thing I want to make sure to, to, to your audience that's out there, um, I use an example. I tell a story about my dad and his Indian motorcycle back in the day, <laughs> and I quote someone there named Jay Parkinson, who is a serial entrepreneur, and I asked him, what what advice would you give? And he's, I'm serial successfully. He'd had many successful exits as a, as a entrepreneur. What advice would you give to a budding entrepreneur? Um, what one piece? And the one thing he said to me, which stuck with me to this day, is he said, Buy a whiteboard. Mm. Literally flow out the, the, the flow of money. Sketch it out on a whiteboard. As each step, think about who are the constituents of the players at each step. And are their own self-interest? Is each of them aligned with yours? Where does the money flow? Spend your time and effort where the money is. And so I think those two pieces, knowing that strategic control is not a continuum, I mean, is a continuum and is not binary. The notion of vertically aligned incentives can be from strong to weak. And if you can buy a whiteboard or a piece of paper or an iPad that you sketch it out up, whatever you like to do, and watch it exist and step back from your market and think about where are we misaligned and where might points of strategic control be, even if it's not in my core, and what can I do to access it? I think just that little bit of effort, and you could do it in an hour in, in your office, in your in your living room, or wherever. Right. Um, I think uh, that that can go a long way to help both small businesses and entrepreneurs succeed. Well, I let me t let me just say this about this to the listeners out there. Okay, so in your book, you actually do have kind of a brief example of what a whiteboard might look like. And how yes. you might how you might sketch this out, and you call it follow the money, you know where where, <laughs> where right is what you call it, and yep, yep. and then you have your Harvey balls, which ones you know are full, half full, quarter full, they look like moons that you fill in to determine, you know you know where where your points are, basically how strong those points are, because remember it's not binary, uh, you are actually taking these points and go how strong is that control point in those areas using those Harvey yep. balls. Did I interpret that correctly? You're absolutely spot on perfect. And I try really hard in, and I have a previous book before this. Um, I, I, I'm not as prolific as you, but I have a, have two of them anyway. <laughs> 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 uh, but the, 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 the first one goes through this and I try and do the same thing in that book. Uh, and the goal to me is not just to tell stories. My goal is to give very concrete steps that you could right. do with almost an instruction manual or process flow for how you would do it for your business. And so I have 
uh, six separate steps you would do, as you mentioned, with uh, with the Harvey Balls in, in this, almost an instruction manual, how you would put together for your business so that hopefully for the reader, it's relatively easy to do, given your knowledge of your core markets. That's awesome. Uh, his name is Dr. William Putzis. The book is The Carrot and the Stick, and he's here with us on A New Direction. And uh, I, want to, I want to talk about one other piece about the strategic control uh, 101 fundamentals that I, I don't want to, I don't think that we should miss. And that is, you talk about strategic control points are market and industry based and competencies are firm based. And I think that's really important because you even say this is one of the points that companies confuse the most. Why do they get them confused? And what are we really saying when we saying strategic control points are more market and industry based and, and, and competencies are firm based? Great, great question, Jay. And so, so the way I the way I would try and think about this is, and I'll give you again another example towards the end of one with uh, Elon Musk and his solar solar ruse. But think again back to that soft soap example. The, either there was the potential to create a shortage by acquiring all those pumps, or there wasn't. Mm. That's the industry. The right. firm, the Minnetonka Corporation, was in a small little company in soap. They didn't create the market. The market was there. And so the idea in your markets, there's a whole bunch of players, there's sourcing, there's um, local patrons, you name it. You don't create that. What you try and find is out of all those different opportunities, whether it be real estate, um, local uh, uh, market access, shelf space in a supermarket, you try and find in the existing market that part of the market that is either in short supply or that I might be able to get a disproportionate access to. So that's what we mean when we say it's market-based. It's just as a result of the conditions that exist in the marketplace. And what I try and do as a company is to find unique competencies that only I can do in those areas that are in short supply. And so I'll throw out real quick, hopefully um, um, this will resonate. Uh, Elon Musk has this, some of you may have seen an absolutely amazing, uh, at least in terms of aesthetics, roofs. They're solar, but they look like the Tuscan tile. They look like real tile roofs, and they're, they're beautiful. And supposedly he claims they have the same efficiency as, as the, 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 the big giant panels that we have in the past. The problem he had years ago was that the industry was set up that in order to do this technology, you needed to hire someone to install it that was both a roofer and a licensed electrician. And I don't know if there are any licensed electrician over the, out there, but I know I've hired many um, and um, <laughs> respect the heck out of what they do because I have right. to pay them a lot of money. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so the, to get someone who's already making, a, 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 in most cases, a, a really good living, making a good wage, to get up on a roof in a hot summer day, given they're already a licensed electrician, that's a really tough sell. And so it turns out that there that, that one company owned over 40% of the existing licensed electricians who also had roofing capabilities. And the company was a, a company by the name of Solar City. And so what did Elon Musk and, and Tesla do? They bought Solar City. So now they have the only technology that can produce with great aesthetics uh, the, infra, the, 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 the tiles up on the roof and combined with their existing installer base, almost 50% of the people who can install it. Now, it's not a monopoly. It's not all. Mm -hmm. Again, that continuum, as you said before, but by recognizing that the suppliers were in short supply and buying the one company that had those suppliers, they now have a dominant position to succeed in this market. 
Love it. I love it. It's Carrot and Stick, and his name is Dr. William Putzis, and he joins us here on A New Direction. Hey, folks, listen, I want to tell you something. We've got these two great sponsors that I talk about all the time, right? First is Epic Physical Therapy. They're my physical therapist. Look, their facility offers the most advanced, top-of-the-line equipment. Here's just a couple of them, right? The Alter-G Anti-Gravity Treadmill takes pressure off your joints so you can run forever. I was never much of a runner, but got to tell you, it does take pressure off your joints. Hey, the Normatec compression sleeves and the Game Ready. I've told you over and over about the Game Ready. Man, ice cold water compression takes the swelling right out of whatever the joint is or whatever that part of your body. It's absolutely fantastic. And it sure beats the old days of going into a tub filled with ice and water and having to put your whole body in there. I'm just telling you from experience. Look, the folks at Epic Physical Therapy, they are trained and certified in the most comprehensive cutting-edge treatments available, including blood flow restriction therapy, dry needling, which is fantastic, and then cupping, right? The little circles on the back of, uh, you see on swimmers in the Olympics, right? Well, that's from cupping, right? They're manipulating the muscle through the skin. Look, You can learn so much more about how to make your life more epic in terms of relief, in terms of recovery, and getting those epic results just by going to Epic Physical Therapy. Go to EpicPT.com. That's E-P-I-C-P-T.com. And Linda Crafted Team Realtors for 85 years. They have been serving the Research Triangle Park area in North Carolina, which is Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, but even more so. They reach the world. How do they do that? Because they're independently owned and operated. They do not belong to a national company. So over the course of the 35 years, Linda has made amazing contacts with the best real estate professionals, regardless of where they are at in the world. And so regardless of where you're listening to me right now, she can literally find the best professional, regardless of company, to help you buy or sell your home because she's created those relationships as well, right? They call her the relationship realtor for a reason. It's not just the relationship she makes with her customers and her clients. It's the relationship she makes with other professionals in the industry, and she makes relationships with the absolute best because she knows her reputation is on the line. It's the reason why her customers say she her customer service is legendary. So look, wherever you're at, when you're ready to sell your home or buy your home, why not look for the folks who want to create the best relationships and give you the best experts? Go to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T.com. And we're back here on A New Direction with Dr. William Putzis and his book, The Carrot and the Stick. And uh, we're having a really good time. Are you having a good time, Doc? You, you doing okay? I'm having a great time. I, I always enjoy talking with you. Um, absolutely. I get, I, as you can tell, I get passionate about this. I, stuff. That, this, is, well, this is the reason why I did this show, right? The reason I do this show is because authors want to talk about what they're passionate about, right? Well, one hopes, and as you know by, by by your books, you write about the things that you are passionate about <laughs> right. because you want to get the word out. So let's talk about something that I think most people in the South, for sure, get a little bit of passion about, right? And that's yeah. kudzu. I didn't right. know where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about something that people will get passionate about, kudzu can actually create some passion. Because that stuff will kill it out and, and everything down here. And I, yep. I've had people curse and swear that stuff, right? Trying to, you know, I've had people get on their knees and pray it would go away. That's how hard it is to get rid of. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but yep. it, it, it's, it's, but the truth of the matter is it was brought here, as you talk about, in 1876 during the Centennial Exposition in Philly. Uh, 
And um, the Japanese brought it in. It was beautiful. And they had all these beautiful, sweet-smelling blooms. And... <laughs> and so during the Great Depression, they used it as soil conservation and thought it was great. Farmers were paid $8 an acre to plant it in their fields. But it's really a metaphor for a bigger problem in business. So connect the dots for us between kudzu and, and the big metaphor of how it chokes things out. Love it. Love it, Jay. Thanks. I love the. I had a laugh when I, when I knew where you were going with, with Kudzu. I tell the story of Kudzu in the book because there are so many things we do in business that we don't think about the opportunities behind what happens. The I call it the principle of unanticipated consequences. So we brought kudzu in to stop soil erosion, but we didn't think about all the other consequences, like it'll stop soil erosion, but take over everything and kill all the plants under it. <laughs> Same thing in business. And I often, I think of most, most, I don't know if you know many of the readers out there, I don't even think I had it in the book. I learned about this after. A guy by the name of Sam Brannan. Mm-mm. And um, he was uh, uh, apparently one of the few people to consistently make money on the gold rush out in California in the 1840s and oh, 1850s. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That was in the book. Yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Fun story. So many, story. People, so many people would go out, sell their life, uh, life savings and go broke because they never find gold out, out west. But he sold pickaxes. And overpriced supplies and overpriced beer and food to those that were out mining. That's often where the opportunities are in business. It's I call it the wake, the what happens behind a boat. Mm. That's where the action is. We often think about the technologies, especially for entrepreneurs and small businesses. We're not going to compete head to head against a Google or an Apple or an Amazon or a Walmart, but the opportunities are behind the technology. Mm. And so that's when we talk about when we talk about kudzu. What as a result of a technology? What as a result of an action by a large player? What opportunities does it create? behind it and those examples are countless yeah i i i love can intel let me ask you this I, I, this is kind of kind of related to the book but it was a question that came into my mind is can intellectual pr- property be a strategic control point oh absolutely absolutely so um uh, you know, back in the day, back 20, 30 years ago, it was probably a stronger one than it is today. But owning a patent on something, especially in, in pharmaceutical markets and others, may make it um, difficult and in some cases illegal and impossible in the short run to overcome the classic definition of something in short supply because you've created it vis-a-vis your patent. Yeah. Um, the issue today, though, in many ways is companies get around patents often enough, especially yeah. in technology and software and other areas, that – it, it's becoming less and less effective in some markets, software, um, business model and design related. But absolutely, if you can use a patent to exclude others from coming in as direct competitors, then it can be a really strong point of strategic control. Intellectual property is a classic one. I look at what I do with companies. I'll go in and uh, not only will I consult with the companies, but I'll help and try and teach their people uh, to do what I do so they don't need me anymore. I always look at right. the, the old thing, a consultant. Uh, what's the definition of a consultant? It's um, a guy without a job who, with a briefcase? No, the person who <laughs> wants to steal, you, steal your watch and sell it back to you again. Yeah, okay, over that one. Over, over and over again. Now, that's not fair. I, say, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was even worse, man. I said it was a guy without a job <laughs> who's carrying a briefcase. So come on, man. <laughs> but, but 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 Jay, what I what I tell companies is that I want I want you I want you to bring me in so I can help your people learn right. how to do what I do so they don't need me anymore. Right. The concept of using a, a value chain, which is the way you 
come up and find points of strategic control and vertically aligned incentives. Again, the fancy terms, but the concepts I think are, are, are fairly, hopefully fairly clear and basic, but that process isn't rocket science. Right. And so my goal is to, you know, have someone read the book or, you know, I work with them or whatever it is. The book is probably the best way to do it. So they don't need to hire a consultant. They don't need to hire me. Right. They can do it themselves. One of the things I, I, I so agree with you, you know, as a, as a coach and consultant, you know, I mean, our, my goal is that you don't need me, not, not to keep me on forever. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, unless you just like me that much and you just want <laughs> to do that. I mean, that's great. Um, one of the things I want to ask, talk to you about is that you didn't exactly say it this way, but it kind of stuck out to me is that sometimes we get strategy so far ahead of strategic control that we've got to actually in reverse. Yep. Yep. Right. I'll, yep. Go ahead. And so, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, go. No, yeah. no. So, so great. It's a great, again, a really good point. So we often go and we're in such a rush to get it out there. Um, entrepreneurs who are, who are technologists are often brilliant scientists. And so they, 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 and I've worked with them in a couple of startups the last couple of years. We're great businesses, but they get ahead of what they're doing with the strategy rather than step back for, for a bit and say, okay, what are the points of strategic control that I can get access that will make, I think of it as greasing the wheels, if you will for the great idea, the great business, the great entrepreneurial idea have. So when it gets to market, it's already, uh, the market is already receptive to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think the idea of, of finding points of strategic control using a whiteboard and a value chain that we explain in the book before you actually go to market is, 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 is pivotal. And, you know, I, uh, I don't know if you, if it makes sense to tell the story I tell about, um, um, the um, uh, the traffic lights. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, the, what what the dude, the guy from Google, yep. uh, lost his name, right? Yes. Yeah, so Larry Page is Larry Page. one of the two Thank co-founders you. of Google, and I'm at this thing every year. Um, a colleague and friend of mine, Jeff Sonneveld, runs something called the Yale CEO Summit every year. 250 or so of the business leaders, like Larry Page, um, at the time he's since stepped down, but he was the CEO. This is about two years ago. CEO of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, co-founder of Google. And so um, Jeff asked him about this was a case of 2017 December when the tax reduction tax reform act of 2017 came in, and businesses in the U.S. were able to repatriate cash they had abroad back to the U.S. at lower tax rates. So at the time. Um, Google had, I don't know, 30 set, 38 billion, something like that, many billions of dollars in cash overseas. And Jeff asked Larry Page in front of 249 of his peers, and I'm in the room, handful of academics like me that are there. Um, he asked Larry, what do you want to do with that? And you're thinking, well, a, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, machine learning. He's going to come up with an answer like this. He says, no, traffic lights. I want to solve the traffic light problem. Uh, <laughs> and he says, I'm sitting in my office in Mountain View. I look at people who should be at work working, and they're sitting at a traffic light with no traffic moving. I want to solve the traffic light problem. I call the town of Mountain View and ask, who's responsible for it? They say, no one. No one's responsible. We just subcontracted out to someone else. He says, I want to solve the traffic light problem. That's beautiful. Then twice in the next 10 minutes, Jeff asked him questions that had nothing to do with traffic light. His answer was traffic lights. And <laughs> And the reason why Jay had told that silly story is because he wasn't thinking about traffic lights. He's thinking four steps ahead. Right. What if we have autonomous vehicles that don't need traffic lights at all? Right. That the cars are talking to each other, so they just go go 
past each other without colliding at that intersection. Right. That's what he's thinking about. And so I encourage everyone out there, your businesses, think, especially in the middle of the pandemic we're going through, right. think four, five, six steps ahead. Right. It's beautiful. His name's uh, Dr. William Putzis here on A New Directions. The book's called The Carrot and the Stick, uh, and uh, he's absolutely fantastic. Okay, I'm going to ask one last question. Well, two questions, but this one I want you to kind of go into. You've done some amazing research in this area that actually demonstrates these points. Will you can you will you be willing to talk about for the next few couple minutes the research and what you found? Oh, I'm happy to, Jay. So, so what so what we did is we went in and we got you know as academics do go in and got a bunch of data that uh, look at. So there's a something called a Wharton WRDS database that looks at you know all the information from public tra- publicly traded companies. And we looked only. Um, at those companies in the S&P 500 because it was in their database, so particularly U.S. firms, large firms. And we looked at uh, the uh, performance of U.S. firms from 2009, and the, date, the study stopped in 2016. The reason why I used 2009 is I didn't want – we were just coming out of the Great Recession. And so I wanted to use data that wasn't tainted by what we went through in the last downturn. And then we went out and we asked subject matter experts on, in their core businesses, how well do these companies do on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being poor, 10 being really good, how well do these companies do in exerting strategic control and how well they do or not in vertical incentive alignment. And we did, and, and I know you from your statistical background understand, understand this, but we looked at what is the... Uh, explanatory power of these two variables, can they, these two variables being strategic control and vertical incentive alignment, how well do they explain across these firms, how well do they explain things like earnings, um, share price appreciation, net income, i.e. financial metrics, and we found that more than anything else, these two factors are the most important material aspects uh, to firm performance. So if you look at those two plus net income, um, I believe it was 43% of the cross-sectional variance mm-hmm. over this time period are explained by just those three variables. So um, to give you some sense, I did this in, 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 in our conversation earlier. We talked, you and I talked about this, but I, I gave that, those statistics to this uh, audience of um, financial managers in, in Miami at a conference uh, back in October when we actually were able to go and speak in public. Um, and they were, they were blown away by it because it's un, really unusual, as you know, to have right. numbers to 43% of the variance is really unusual. Usually it's like 8%. Right. Yeah. And they this, wanted to. They wanted to create a fund. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're going. Well, if you can explain that much, let's 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 create a fund. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I think. I think for those of you who don't understand the statistical impressiveness of this, right, is that for most of the times that we we do research, uh, regardless of what the research is, but the most of the time we do research, we we cannot account for that much variance in that few variables. It's it's very rare that that happens, which makes what he's talking about in this book in terms of the care, the, the stick, you know, the, the strategic control points and the carrot, the vertical alignment, right? And then the net income, having those three factors be the factors that account for such a huge amount of the variance is absolutely it's almost preposterous to even think about because we just it we 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 accept a whole lot less and we call it statistically significant how's that for an answer yep yep right that's good 
So, Jay, to even to drive it home to the audience that might might this might even drive it more. So, those companies that did well, so we grouped them into companies that did well on both strategic control and vertical alignment, and we looked at those that didn't do well in terms of their ability to exert strategic control and vertical alignment. And those that did well on both actually had their earnings double. Mm. It's over 223% over this period growth in earnings. Those that did poorly on both on both actually had their earnings decline. Mm. So the point is, get a stick and get a carrot. <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> you know what you know what i appreciate you having we've been on for an hour and you have been an outstanding guest uh the show's called a new direction because we help people find a new direction in their life their career or their business and today was a business day and even a career day i think and and even maybe a life day i always ask my friends because you're a friend uh bill of the show and uh i always ask them if you could leave the listener with a new direction Based on the carrot and the stick, what would Dr. William Putzis leave the new direction? What would that, his new direction be? So I, I would, so the biggest one, Jay, I would say without question is to spend a day, even if it's just an hour, spend time stepping back from your business, thinking about the flow of money in your, in, in your industries and what you can do outside of what you're currently doing to align the incentives across the players in that industry and try and access the points that are in short supply, what I call points of strategic control, buy a whiteboard, step back from your industry, draw it up on the wall. And even without reading the book, I'd argue just the act of doing that would provide insight. The hope would be that if you, you were to read the book, it would give you a little more than, um, than that, but some ability to get new insights that you had, had, hadn't had before. And, and so the long, that's the long-winded answer, Jay. The short version is step back from your business, take the time to reflect using the principles that we talked about today. That's awesome. His name, Dr. William Putzis. The book is called The Carrot and the Stick, and it is uh, just an absolutely fabulous read. Get it. Uh, available at Amazon bookstores near you. It's absolutely fabulous. Folks, it's a show. You know what I say to you every week, right? Be inspired. Because when you're inspired, that means that you will inspire others. And in turn, they become inspired, and they inspire other people around them. And that can make this world an amazing place. I'm going to be back next week with another great guest, another great book, and it's going to be another great show, as I say to you every week. You know what that is. Ciao, everybody. The time has come for a new direction. your confidence and the answers don't make sense you got to keep your hope alive you got to know you can survive this is your